Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us as we continue to unpack how some of the best performers in the world intentionally set their mind to be their best. But before we introduce today's guest, we want to share a company that we partnered with at the podcast. So Two Betty's is a snack company, but they're not your typical snack company. So their tagline is for goodness sake, and they are really in the snack business to try to shift and change how it is that we consume our snacks. So they've got chocolate chunk rounds and maple cinnamon rounds. They're these two packs. They look like mini donuts, but they're anything but donuts. So I like to eat them with a hard-boiled egg in the morning, and it gives me natural energy and protein that I need to start my day. They're terrific snacks. I grab them on the go. Uh, I have a busy schedule, just like I know many of you do, and I really find them to be useful throughout my day, but especially in the morning. So try them for yourself. And we're actually going to give you a 15% off discount at the checkout with the promo code intentional. So you can go over to twobetties.com. That's the number two and the word Betty's and punch in the promo code intentional. And you're going to get 15% off your first order. We also are very excited to launch our Patreon homepage. So you can go over to patreon.com backslash intentional performers. And for as little as $2 a month, you can help support the podcast. If you support us with $5 a month or $10 a month, you're actually going to get a shout out on the show, which we are going to do right now. So Peace Players is a nonprofit that I've been involved with. Uh, they do amazing work all over the world. They just launched a domestic program, but they're in uh, areas like Israel, South Africa, Ireland, Cyprus, and they're really all about the power of sport and using the power of sport to unite, educate, and inspire young people to hopefully create a more peaceful world. And couldn't we use some more peace in this world today? So they offer sport programming, peace education, and leadership to develop those living in communities of conflict. And certainly we have some communities in, in conflict in the United States, but we have that all over the world. So they try to bridge divides. They bring people together through the game of basketball, which is a, a game and a sport that I'm extremely passionate about. And I've seen Peace Players in action. I actually went on a trip to Israel with them and saw the work that they did in one of the most conflicted areas that we have in the world. And I've seen their work in Baltimore, which is another place that has some challenges. So Peace Players is doing amazing work. A lot of the guests that you've listened to on this show have come from my work with Peace Players. So go over to peaceplayers.org. Definitely contribute if you're able, or just find out a little bit more about what they're doing domestically and what they're doing internationally. Uh, you will be glad you did. And thanks to Peace Players for all of the work that you continue to do around the world. So without further ado, I'm excited to cue the music and tell you about this week's guest. And during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. We ran up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. 
thing you got to remember is you're transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now, let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. I'm Brian Levinson. Really excited to have you with us as we chat with intentional performers. We find out about their story, about their journey, and we leverage that story to find out how are they setting their mind for preparation and for performance. So we'll dive into both of those. We want to find out what are they doing daily in their preparation? What are they doing moment to moment in their preparation? And then what gems or what things are they doing action-wise, whether it's mantras, breathing, techniques, tools, goals, visions, motivation statements, whatever it might be to help them set their mind intentionally for performance. So we chat with intentional performers. We chat with everything from CEOs to agents to athletes to coaches. And today we chat with a fitness trainer. And while he's a fitness personal trainer by occupation, what makes Dennis so interesting is his journey. This is somebody who's gone through all different types of adversity, whether it's his upbringing and his parents and seeing some things that really no child should have to watch to injuries, to dealing with cancer. I mean, Dennis has been through a tough road, but when you meet him for the first time, as I did, you would have no idea. He's a big, strong guy whose smile is bigger than his muscles, and he is somebody who just exudes energy and is someone who you just want to be around. And within minutes, I realized that he was somebody who lives life to its fullest and doesn't make excuses for the challenges he's had along the way. In fact, he's actually used some of his story to help him stay motivated, to help him stay gritty. And he's developed tools and techniques with how he sees the world, but he will admit it wasn't always that way. So he's had a really interesting journey and he's accomplished a lot within the training world. So part of Dennis's story took him to the IMG Academy where he worked with all kinds of different athletes. He's been in Minneapolis, Minnesota, where he worked with athletes from the Minnesota Twins, the Timberwolves, the Vikings, the Minnesota Wild. So he's worked with some of the best athletes in the world. And now he works in New York City working with normal people, people like you and people like me, to help them develop their fitness. And he's really proud of the work that he's doing and the work that he will continue to do. He's a Nike fitness trainer, and he's a member of the Men's Health Fitness Council. So he's got some great accolades to his name. But as I mentioned, his story, the way he looks at life, and really his mindset is just as impressive as his physique. So I'm really excited to share Dennis with you. He's got just an intense story, and he is able to show his vulnerability and communicate that story with tremendous ease and with tremendous gratitude. So he is a fascinating performer, and I know you're going to love this conversation. And when you do, I would love for you to share it. Uh, And if you are interested in Dennis, I'd love for you to check him out. If you're in New York City, I know based on our metrics, we have a lot of people listening to New York. 
go over to the fitting room, go see him. He's doing great work with all kinds of people and helping them develop themselves physically, mentally, and emotionally. So when you do like this episode, if you could share it with friends, family on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, wherever you're social, we of course will be extremely grateful to you for doing that. So sit back, sit tight, buckle in. This is an intense conversation. It's a deep conversation. It's rich. And without further ado, I'm so excited to present to you, Dennis Lozada. Dennis, thank you so much for having me. I'm in the fitting room studio. So you're actually hosting me, which I appreciate. Um, And I'm looking forward to getting to know you and also learning more about the fitting room. But what I'd love to do is I'd love to start with finding out a little bit about your background. So walk me through what life was like for you as a kid, uh, what your family was like, friends, uh, your upbringing, and and we'll sort of go from there. Okay, well, first of all, thank you very much for having me. Um, And you're here in my home at the Thin Room Penthouse on the Upper East Side. Um, I'm a unique story. Um, A lot of people know my story, a lot of people don't. So I grew up in Brooklyn, Red Hook, New York. Um, My dad was Puerto Rican, my mother's Italian. Um, They both passed away. Uh, numerous years ago, my mom left me on my 10th birthday. Um, I never saw her again. And my dad put me in a home for boys um, right before Christmas, right before I was turning 11. Time out, time out, time out. Sorry. It's okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's one of those things that it's not your normal upbringing. So when people find these things out about me, um, the first thing they say is just what you did. Wait, 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 wait. Um, yeah, it's a little different. I grew up in group homes. I grew up in foster homes. I grew up in the juvenile delinquent system um, all throughout possibly until I was about 15 years old. Um, at the age of about 15, I got lucky enough that I had a friend whose uh, family wanted to foster me because of uh, sports. Um, I was really good in sports when I was living in Rockin County. Um, you know, it was football, basketball, and baseball. I was all county. I was all league and all three sports, and uh, I became really close friends with him and his family. And so I had to move. I was getting older, so I had to move down to another group home. And they were like, "No way! Um, like we're not letting you go. You know, we really want you to live with us." So I was like, "Okay." What were you like from the age of ten to fifteen? And and uh, take me to ten years old. Ten years old. It's where the, where you said mom mom leaves. Mom mom leaves. Yeah. So um, at ten, my my birthday's in August. So it's the summertime, you know, you know how kids are in the summertime. You get up at the crack of dawn and you want to be out all day. Um, unfortunately, my dad was, you know, um, your typical, uh, he was a drunk. He uh, was an abuser, stuff like that. And my mom was kind of like, you know, a punchy bag. So I just, I guess what happened is I got old. I realized what, you know, you can't be a punchy bag forever. But I remember being out. I remember so you're home. witnessing this as a kid though. Oh, yeah, yeah. I grew up in a very, um, you know, I could say you're... Your story that you see on TV every day, you know, broken down home, um, dad's an abuser, mom is, you know, the punching bag, and you have a son who's going to be on that track of following in his father's footsteps. Uh, and any siblings? No, I was the only child. I was the only child. Um, thank God. Um, one only made one of me, which is a good thing. So that's a good thing. Um, but no, that's how I grew up. Um, I came home that day, uh, I remember, and I was looking for my mom. She was in, she was in the apartment. And uh, I said, okay, what's going on? My father came home. And he was, you know, already getting to that point where he was already possibly on his 100th drink, God knows. And it was kind of like already the midweek. So um, I just remember her never coming home again. And that was that. You know, I never she saw her again. Left. She just left. I saw her six months later. Um, she had already been with somebody else. And I tried to, you know, I begged her to come back. And 
basically that was the time when I realized that mom was gone and I was just me and my father. But at that time, my father was getting worse and worse with the drinking and the drugs. And it was just really just getting to a point where I was like, wow, like this is, uh, this is really good. Um, good, bad part, you know, good part, bad part about that was that he realized he couldn't take care of me. So he put me in a home for boys in, uh, in Brooklyn, New York. And, uh, that was that. That was the last I saw him for quite some time. I think the next time I saw him again, I was possibly about 14 years old. Now, my dad was like a big abuser. You know, he, uh, hit me, you know, but, uh, the good thing about that is that going back, I started boxing at seven years old. So when I was, I started boxing at a very young age, um, because my dad wanted to be tough. I was, again, I'm Italian and Puerto Rican. I grew up in Red Hook, Brooklyn. My neighborhood was very divided, um, and being, you know, of uh, darker skin, um, but sounding very Italian was not the, not the norm there. So I got picked on a lot and I had to obviously protect myself. I didn't have any siblings. Um, so I was known as that kid who, you know, who was quiet, but could handle himself. So, uh, boxing really helped me out a lot. I'll say when I grew up in these, uh, different situations, which was foster home, a group home or juvie. Was there a mentor that took you under their wing? Who are the people? Cause Dennis, I walk into this gym. We never met before. You have an energy, a presence, a <laughs> smile about you, a warmth. Like was it, who else impacted um, you? Uh, I had, I, I was very lucky, I will say. I've had some people along the way um, who really impacted my life. Um, I want to go back to when I was um, in high school, um, one of my football coaches. Um, he, you know, I was the minority in my school. I mean, I went to school in Rockland County, um, which was 99.7% uh, uh, white. Um, I was possibly the only minority in my school. Fortunately for me, once again, athletics played a huge role. I'm an athlete. I've always been. I thank my parents for giving me those genes. Um, whether it's football, whether it's basketball, whether it's baseball, I I had that confidence in each sport that I knew that I was I could be the best. And no matter what position I played, what you know, whether it's freshman, JV, or varsity, I knew that I stood out. Um, and those were things that really helped me to make friends, to make my four years in high school, you know. Relatively, like, very memorable. Um, so my high school football coach, uh, who was my freshman football coach, who was my social studies teacher as well, you know, God rest his soul, Mr. Lachlan, um, he, um, he took me under his wing. You know, he didn't see color. He just saw a young man who was a great athlete, um, who just worked hard, and who, you know, didn't give any back talk. I showed him respect all the time. And he had no idea that I lived in a group home until one day when I was walking home, and he lived literally three blocks away from the group home that I lived in. And he gave me a ride home and he dropped me off. The next morning, he went to pick, came to pick me up. They wanted to have a conversation with me before class. So we spoke and uh, he really, you know, let me know what he thought about me as a young man and how much he appreciated me and how he didn't realize this. And he's not that he's not sorry uh, that he really just sees a lot of me and wants me to just make sure that Throughout my life, I lived up to my full potential. And I, I still remember those things, that little conversation he and I had growing up. How do you think about mom and dad as, as you look back on um, on that dynamic and, and how they've had an impact on your life? Well, now that I'm, now that I'm older, um, it's definitely, I don't know, it's weird. Um, I think people ask, they say to me, first thing they say, oh my God, I'm so sorry. And I'm like, you know what? It's, there's nothing to be sorry about. You know, I'm, I'm, the, I'm very fortunate. Because I don't know that if I would have stayed living with them, that my life would have turned out the way it is now. 
you know, like I, I don't know. Um, and life for me is good. I've been through my ups. I've been through my downs. I mean, I've had some, I've battled cancer three times, you know, because both my parents passed away of cancer. So I have the gene. Um, so it's what kind of cancer? I had testicular twice and I'm two years of remission now with breast cancer. Okay. <laughs> and we're going to hit the pause button. So that's not something you hear every day. No, no, it's definitely not. Um, it's something that I also don't really open up to about until um, I started working at the fitting room. Um, I think uh, almost two years ago when I thought I was clear of all testicular and I was fine, I was going well, I started to, uh, I crossfit and I was doing ring muscle ups and I was feeling a really bad pull in my pec. Um, and I'm like, what is this? Like tear a muscle? I'm like, you gotta be kidding me. That's the first thing you fear is tearing a muscle during ring muscle ups. And I didn't realize what it was. I started feeling around it. And when I went for my checkup, um, in Minnesota, um, the doctor told me, he's just like, I'm sorry. And I'm like, you gotta be kidding me. I'm like, you know, this is like never ending, you know, like what else can go wrong for me? How common is breast cancer for males? It's really, really not. It's possibly, it's one of the least known cancers that men can possibly have. Um, and that's the one thing we never think about men when you think about breast cancer. You always think about testicular, colon. Um, and I, you know, I did my research on it, everything. And I think what happened with me was because I had testicular passed up through my lymph nodes mm-hmm. and into, the, into the, my breast tissue. Um, and that's when I got in. You know, I think that was the first time that uh, I realized to myself, you know, I kind of wanted to give up. I can't remember coming back home to New York and talking to my boss, Carrie, and letting her know, you know, she was asking, like, what's wrong? And I remember coming to work one day, and uh, I just broke down. And she was, you know, she knows me very well. I'm pretty much a private person. I couldn't work. It came my personal business, my personal business. Um, and I, you know, work is work. My personal life is our personal life. And I broke down to her, and I told her that I can't do this anymore. And she's like, what's wrong? And I opened up to her, and I let her know what was going on. And I remember, like, her telling me, take time off. I'm like, I can't. If I take time off, I'm going to lose my mind. So I would go to Minnesota, um, get my radiation, come all the way back home on a flight, Sunday night, and I would teach Monday. Because if I didn't have this, I would have really possibly not have uh, made it through. What does this do for you? So the fitting room is it's really weird. So I was, it's funny because I was never one for group fitness. I was always a one-on-one personal trainer. And group fitness for me, um, seeing it in the global gyms was something I was like, wow, like so many people's forms are off, like people get injured. And then I came to the fitting room and um, it was a, a different dynamic than I had ever seen. Two instructors, very professional instructors who were correcting people, giving quick cues to people, people really knowing what those cues meant. Um, and I was like, wow, this is a really, really different. And this is when we first started out at 80th Street, so almost five years ago. Yeah, I've been with us now three years. Um, so the, in the three now, almost three years I've been with us, um, I learned not just about myself, um, and I've not embraced also group fitness, but I've learned what community, what community is in the fitness industry. And here at the fitting room, it's, we're, we're a little different, you know, and uh, I think you have to experience it. When you take a class, you really experience that community as a first timer, you come in, you're nervous, you know, and uh, you're like, my God, so many people, so many people know each other. But then the atmosphere becomes so friendly that you just feel embraced and you just fall in love with it. You use the word community, and I think a lot of times sports teams will talk about family. You know, yeah. Sports teams, family. 
And I, I sometimes struggle with that word because family is a, is a really strong word. And I, you know, I, I get the analogy, but I think sometimes it's an overused word. Um, what does community mean to you? Well, community, community, family, two different things for me. Um, I don't have a family, which is a little different for me, you know. Um, so this is my family. Uh, I never really grew up with a family. And I don't use the word friends very loosely either. You know, you're either my friend or you're my acquaintance. You know, so um, here I've developed a family. I've grown with a the family. They've seen me grow um, to where I am now in my career. When I first started, they've helped me get there. They've also mentored me in many, many ways. But the community here is something that's it's very unique um, and that I love and is special to me. Whether it's this location, up, our newest location up west side, or our downtown location, the entire fitting room community um, in, its, in itself is just it's something that you have to experience. And I think if you walk into a classroom and you could not be seen or heard, but you could just watch, you would, you would really see what happens when people of all different sorts of fitness levels, I don't care if you're a first timer, if you've never even touched the weight to a person who comes here all the time, to someone who only comes here with their spouse, um, how everyone smiles, everyone, you know, they love that smile. You hear the music is going, the atmosphere, the energy, um, people love being corrected. People embrace, you know, how hard the workouts are and how hard we push them and know when to pull them back, how to uplift them when they're having bad days. Some people actually come here after work just cause this is their, their break from reality. Their one hour break from everything else that's going on in the world. This is their one hour that's theirs that they can come and enjoy. And if you can come and enjoy one hour with us of a workout, that's possibly one of the hardest workouts and enjoy it. And at the end you give a hug and you're like, I love you, but I hate you. It's, it's a feeling that it's indescribable unless you're that person. Like unless you're me and you could really just see what it's like to uh, watch a person and just watch them grow in their fitness journey. You know, it's something that you can't put a price tag on. I tell people all the time, I'll be like, what do you love about I'm like, when I see this person who I remember four months ago was like, you know, just didn't really know the body mechanics, their body awareness or their body awareness or his, didn't know how to, you know, the movement. They were afraid to pick up heavy weight. They, you know, they couldn't really go overhead. They didn't know what a kettlebell was from a dumbbell. And now I watch them and it's just like watching your child grow. And I don't know what it's like to have a child, but, you know, it's just like watching just like this beautiful flower just growing and just blossom. You're just like, wow. I want to go back a little bit. So you're in high school now. Um, and why not take that path of violence or anger? I'm sure there was oh. anger. It sounds like boxing helped you boxing. deal with that anger. Yeah. But like, why not just become an issue? Well, that's the thing. So um, I did realize that I had a lot of anger in me. And I was very closed off and very closed off to the world when I was in high school. I, I say to myself, I think again, being Italian, Puerto Rican, and going to a school where it was predominantly white was a little different for me. I had friends, but I was very closed off. And I was very ashamed of where I lived and how, you know, my upbringing because uh, it's just not normal. You know, it's not something you tell someone, oh yeah, you know, my parents left me when I was 10 years old. You know, it's kind of uh, one of those things where it's it's embarrassing and, and it really hurts you and it's a reminder so you just avoid that issue 
Um, but the anger was always there. I think, honestly, and people ask me, like, were you angry? I was like, I think I stopped being angry um, when they both passed away. Mm-hmm. Uh, my mom passed away first, and I actually went to her uh, funeral, her, her grave, and I let out what was inside. And that's when I stopped being angry. And my dad, I remember. How old, how old were you? I was 26 at the time, 27. And did you have a relationship with her no. as an adult? No, not at all. The last time, the last time that I saw my mom uh, was right. I think I was 10 and a half, maybe 11. So right, pretty much after she left, yeah, she, was she left. That was it. That was it. That was it. And I, I remember, you know, that was it. There was nothing more. Um, her relationship was it was over. You know, um, but I found out that she had passed away. And that was, I, I remember going to her, to her grave and I guess letting out whatever I had inside me and I felt good. Um, but I also felt at peace because uh, I let out what the anger that I had, I let her know how I felt, but also let her know what she meant to me and which I missed her, you know? So it was okay. I was okay with that. Did she instill any values in you from age one to 10? Is there anything um, that you think that she instilled in you? Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm pretty, I'm a pretty caring person. Um, I have a, I have a big heart and, uh, I will definitely do anything for anyone. So I hear that and I have to say like, all right, there's this, there's this dilemma of like, she's being abused. It's not sustainable for her to be there anymore. And it seems like what was best is for her to leave. But someone else might look at it and be like, how does a mother leave their only son? Exactly. And how is that caring? Yeah. Yeah. My mom would, my mom definitely helped me to be a caring person um, as I got older, learning on what she did and thinking back on how she cared for me and how she cared for others. It wasn't just about me. You know, I remember living in our building and how she took care of everyone and she was always there for everyone. And she must had, you know, the biggest heart because my dad was not the greatest person in the world. And uh, she was always had a smile on her face. She always helped everyone. Um, Your energy that you bring is that what she was like? She was yeah, like- yeah. I, I think my mom, you know, my mom was always very happy. Uh, even when I, I remember growing up when I was boxing, um, you know, she would always make me like the perfect meal. I had like the best trunks, everything. You know, like her and my dad. When it came to boxing, like I, that was my thing. Uh, I was a really good amateur fighter, um, and uh, she, you know. I just remember everything about, it was always about me with her and about making me happy. And I remember how my, you know, our neighbors, you know, they'd see her and they would smile and she always had this big smile on her face. And things in my house were not the greatest, but my mom always had a great smile and her energy. And I think that's what was passed down to me was just the energy. And I know because all my dad, when I come to class, I know that there are days when I'm not having a great day. I'm having a, an awful day. But I know that this class depends on my energy and how everyone else is going to react to it. And so I, I have to turn that switch on. And your dad doesn't sound like the world's greatest, but no. is there anything that, that he passed down to you or that you're proud of or anything that... Yeah, I, I, I definitely say um, his grind. I, re, I do, I mean, you know, I do remember him working two jobs to make ends meet for us. I, you know, whether, how he how he did it, I don't know, because uh, I don't remember my father ever not being in a state of drunkenness or you know under the influence. But he did what he had to do to support us, 
Um, I never needed. I, that's one thing we never needed. I, I never went a day without, you know, all three meals, having clothes on my back, having the best stuff. My, you know, having whatever I needed, I always had from him. Um, if I had to go to uh, a wafer fights with the amateur team, the money was there. And so you're in high school, you're a three-sport athlete there, you're also boxing, so you're an active dude. Uh, that sounds like it's a big part of your identity uh, in high school. What were you like from a mental standpoint uh, when you were competing at, in high school? Um, wow. So let's go to football. Um, as a freshman, I was only on JV. So I was, I, I think I was already mature for my age simply because of where I had to grow up. I had to grow up quickly. I mean, you became an adult, you're living in a foster home. Exactly. I mean, the, you know, people ask me, what was the difference between a foster home and a juvenile delinquent center? I'm like, I'll take a foster home any day or a group home. By the way, juvenile delinquent center, how do you end up there? So what happens is they get, so the New York system is not the greatest system. Um, there is only so many beds. And what they try to do is they try to fill as many kids in as many beds as possible. And, uh, you know, if there's not a bed, but there's a bed in a detention center with the population that's not, you know, level three, they're only level one, they'll put you there because it's level one kids. It's kids who are not that uh, a detriment to society. So these are kids that might have stole stuff. Exactly. And... They're lower level. Uh, but you're still at you're still still in a yeah. juvenile center. Exactly. Just because mom, mom left and dad, and left dad had it. And, you're, and there are no other beds anywhere else. So what's it like interacting with those kids? Um, a, and did your did your boxing? Like, uh, boxing played a big role in my life. <laughs> um, you know, first of all, I mean, I, I've always gotten called a pretty boy. I don't know why I don't think I'm a pretty boy, but um, I, you know, going to the juvies, I had to defend myself, and every day wasn't you know wasn't a win, and uh, and it wasn't a loss, but it was a gain of respect. So did you gain respect because they knew they couldn't mess with you? I gained respect because I wouldn't, I wouldn't back down. You know, I was a type of child and I'm still the type of person who, you know, if it comes at me, I have to deal with it. Um, and the best way that I knew how to deal with it at that age was, you know, defending myself. And I had no other choice but to defend myself. So did you get into trouble? I got into a lot of fights. Yeah. I got into a lot of fights growing up in the juvie. Um, but... Again, that's standard there. It's one of those things that's going to happen. You have a bunch of young adults who are from range from the age of 11 to 16. So, you know, there are going to be some bullies. There are going to be some kids who are, you know, the alpha males. There are going to be kids who are not, you know, who are the ones who get picked on. Then, the, then you have the in-betweens who kind of like don't go either way, but they, you know, they just walk that middle line. That's how I think I was. I just walked that middle line where I defend myself, but I also never wanted to see anyone being taken advantage of. So I would also protect. You'd stick up for people. Absolutely. Walk me through that timeline just so I'm on the same page as you. When were you in foster care? When were you? So, so um, the foster, I left the group. My dad put me into a 90-day uh, a facility where you keep your, where you put your child in if you feel that you can't take care of them anymore and it's with the New York family so after 90 days you're supposed to come and pick them up well day 89 came and I still hadn't seen my father and this place was you know right in New York um, and it came to a time where they were saying to me you know at this point at this junction either what's going to happen is the state is now going to you're going to be a ward of the state 
Like, what does that mean? Like, telling an 11-year-old, an 11-year-old to go to the state. I don't know what that means. Um, and basically what it meant was that the state had to then, you know, basically find a new location for me to live. Um, and that's what happened. I, I left Brooklyn and I uh, went to Rotham County. Yeah, I went to Rotham County, New York. And it was the first time I had ever seen, uh, you know, such such open area. I had never, you know, I, I lived in a city. I grew up with high rises, you know, the trains, the highways, the bus services, and Rockland County was suburbia. And what did, what was that process like from a family standpoint? What, what did it, your living situation changes? Well, living situation changed, yeah. Be, um, I mean, I was happy because um, at that time, uh, I was, it was, I knew I no longer could go to another juvenile detention center. I knew now that I was going to a facility where I would be there until my, my you know, 16th birthday. So I knew I was going to be there for the next five years, which was, I guess, a relief because I knew that I would be making a living there um, and I would grow up there. This is a 12-year-old kid, 11-and-a-half-year-old kid, but you had that awareness back then that this yeah. is a good thing for me. It was a good thing. I mean, I was out of the city. Um, I had been in and out of running away from the Jewies when you group homes in a city and enough was enough. You know, I knew I had to make a decision and uh, I was going down wrong. Like I was, I was in a group home and I would run away for a weekend, go hang out with our friends and just do wrong things. Um, and it was just basically, I was just rebelling. You know, I was, just, I was upset. I was angry. I was angry at the world. You know, uh, I was angry with everyone. So I realized that when I went to Rock County, it was maybe the best thing for me. And I was exactly 12 years old. I remember that. I was in eighth grade. Um, my grades were good enough that I didn't have to go to school on campus. I can go to school, the regular middle school in, Rock in Rockland County. And that's when things... Why were your grades good enough? Um, I was always one of those kids who uh, who wanted to be... I, didn't, I never was a really... I was never a genius. I'll never be a genius. <laughs> that's not going to happen. But I went to school. I went to school and I did my homework. You know, because uh, your profile, like you said, I'm sure there are a lot of people in those places. They can't yeah, get no, access they to can't get school out, yeah. because they're not going to school. Absolutely. So um, while I was in the group home, um, even when I was in regular school, I was school my parents put me away in, uh, in the group home. I had really good grades. Um, I, my mom was always on me, making sure that my grades were up to par, that I did my homework. If I couldn't do my homework, I couldn't go box. And boxing was like life. So I had to get it done. And if my grades slipped... There was no more boxing. All right, so so now you're in high school. You're in Rockland County. I think you talked about sort of the dynamics there and the challenges that exist. You're excelling in sports. That's part of your identity. What do you like socially? Are you able to connect to people because of the athleticism, or what's that um, like that's the, that was the biggest way that I connected was because of athleticism uh, and you know me being an athlete, me loving sports. So that's how I became friends. But I was always so very skeptic because once again, you know. It's a different dynamic. Um, it's very, it was very white, you know, and I had never really had so much interaction with so many in my life. You know, I grew up in Red Hook, Brooklyn, where it was predominantly black and Latino. Um, so for me, it was different. Um, the way they, the way they spoke, the way I spoke, I had a very hard Brooklyn accent. Um, I looked different, so it was challenging. Um, there were times it, it, it could it was depressing, you know. But fortunately, again, sports is what really did it for me. Sports in school, like I, I mean, sports really 
allowed me to release all the anger, whether it was football, whether it was basketball, whether it was baseball. Winning was like something that drove me, and it drove because it drove me. I think it really just carried down to my teammates that played with me. And so, from a mental standpoint, what kind of person, athlete? You, you mentioned confidence earlier. Where did your confidence come from as boxing, an athlete? Definitely from boxing. Um, I think in bo- bo- boxing is a sport. I don't even want to say it's a sport. It's something, you know, You it's a different state of mind. Like, think about this. You're, whatever age you are, you're going into a ring. You're about to be allowed to get punched in the face. And you're going to read, either you're going to do one or two things. You're either going to run or you're going to take that punch and retaliate under control. And that's what boxing is. Boxing is a chess game. People don't realize that boxing is a chess game. I'm thinking about what your next move is before I do mine. So, you know, it's people talk about, about getting hit, you know, sick and moving. And that's really what it is. Boxing is, is a chess game, you know, and you have to be very intelligent inside the ring under control um, mentally to really be a great fighter. Yeah. The idea of reacting instead of responding. Yeah. Like the difference between those two is, is, is significant, right? A reaction. Someone punches me in the face. I'm running away. That's a reaction. Right. Or I curl into a ball or I don't want to get hit anymore. Those are reactions that make sense. They're mm-hmm. very logical reactions. Exactly. A response is something much more in depth, much more, uh, has much more nuance to it. It's much more intentional. I'm going to respond. You jab me. All right. Now next time I'm going to put on my left and then maybe I'm going to hit you with a hook. Exactly. Or whatever it's going to be. Yeah. That's a response. And to your point, boxing has counter punching. It has, you know, being fearless enough to take a step forward and leaving your guard and making yourself vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Uh, boxing has footwork. Uh, boxing has a spotlight on you. You can be embarrassed, uh, ashamed, uh, all these emotions that you talked a lot about in your childhood. Yeah. Uh, but boxing does open you up to that. I work with a lot of wrestlers and it's very similar. It's a pain sport. You know, you're going to experience pain yep. and you can see a lot of times wrestlers have lost before they even step into yeah. on the mat. It's the same way in boxing. So I've had a lot of friends when I was in high school who, who were wrestlers. Um, and no one really knew in high school that, that I boxed, you know, like before I went, even went to, to, uh, Nanuet. I was already a two-time junior Olympic champion. I was a two-time kick-up champion. My boxing resume was already written as an amateur. Um, so so when, even though you have this crap happening to you at a young age, you're also having these accolades and these successes. Uh, yeah. um, and is that driving you to feel more? You mentioned like loving winning. Uh, is that driving you also? It that always sort has, of yeah. External, getting the trophy or getting the glo- golden gloves or that sort of stuff? Well, what it was, honestly, was making my my dad proud, yeah. but seeing my mom happy. That mm. was what drove me in boxing. Was was I loved seeing my dad happy because I knew that nothing was going to happen that night. But the smile on my mom's face. Time out, time out. So if I win a match, my dad's not touching me. Exactly. So, so it, it, that's it, a massive... Well, it, boxing all started because uh, I, got my, I, <laughs> I got my butt kicked a couple times. And my dad was, you know, my dad was much just on the street, just on the street, kid. and he was like, "This isn't happening anymore." Not my son. Took me to a, took me to the gym. Did he box? Uh, no, no. But he could. He was a he was a street fighter. Yeah, you he know? could hold his own. Yeah, he could hold his own. He took me to the boxing gym, and I'm not lying. To you, the first three to four months, I hated boxing. I was getting my butt kicked daily, and I remember talking to my mom. And I remember crying to my mom, and she's like, she just sat me down, and she's like. She just had a conversation with me. She's like, what do you want to do? And I'm like, 
I, I want to be good. I want to be good at this. I, I, don't, I, want, I want to start getting my butt kicked. And she's like, you just start to believe in yourself. And you start to believe that you can do this, that you are the best, and that when you're in that ring, that is your ring. All right, so now we're hitting on it because confidence doesn't come from boxing. No. Right? A lot of people box that lack confidence. Boxing comes from what you're doing inside of inside yourself, mm-hmm. the dialogue you're having with yourself. Yeah. That's where confidence comes from. Yeah. And your mom helped you develop that, oh, cultivate yeah. that. But say, every time I step in that ring, I have to believe in myself or else it's just going to be I'm, I'm reacting and yeah. I'm not going to get to respond. And I, remember, I remember after our conversation, I just remember that Monday going to the gym. This was on a Sunday. Her and I took a walk and we had a conversation after church. And uh, I cried to her, and she just sat me down, just spoke to me, told me how great she thought I was, and how you don't have to be a tough guy to be a fighter. You don't have to be this. You just have to believe in you, believe in yourself, and believe when you're in that ring that you are the best. She's like, I believe in you. I wouldn't let you do this if I didn't believe in you. She's like, I want you to be the best. And I tell you that Monday, that Monday on, I went to the gym, and nobody that was my age or a couple years older than me wanted to spar with me after that. I would have to spot the older, older kids because I was whooping some tail. <laughs> so there's I mean, just, there's my, just a shift in how yeah, you're seeing it was, yourself. It was, a, it was a shift that I, uh, my coaches were, you know, they were like, whoa. Like, I, I, what would you say to yourself before you got in the ring? Can you remember that? And yeah, even I, take us to the, yeah, to, to, to that. Yeah, what do you say to yourself? Still to this day, I remember. I'd always go down on one knee. As soon as I got in the ring, I did my, my three laps around the ring. I go down on one knee. And I just say the first thing I always say, I always say to myself, is, thank you, my mom. Thank you, mom. I love you. This is for you. And that was it. So I'm grateful. Thank you. Thank you, mom. I love you. This is for you. That was what I've always said. I, and know, that cleared you and allowed you to just go. And that was just like, I would look over to my left. I knew she was always sitting there with, you know, my dad and she, you know, and she just knew. Wait, but she wasn't sitting there. She wasn't after, well, she left me after I was, after she left, um, I stopped boxing. I completely stopped. So when you're saying they didn't know you were a boxer, it's because you weren't a boxer in high school. No, when I was in, in school, when I was in high school, I didn't box. I mean, I trained, but nobody knew I boxed. I didn't start boxing again until I came back from college. Okay. All right. Take me to college. So you excel at football. You excel at basketball. You're, you're an athlete, but is football the sport that... Football is my sport. Football, I mean, football. people always ask, you know, you're a football player and you box. Like, what, which one do you love more? I mean, I love baseball and I love basketball. Um... I love football, but boxing is my passion. All right, what did you love about football, and then why is boxing your passion? Uh, football, I, there's, it's me and 10 other guys working towards one goal, and that's to win. You know, everybody has responsibility. Everyone has everyone's back. And it's just 11 guys grinding. It's an entire team grinding every single day, three days, two days, in the heat, in the summer. Um you know, one guy goes down, another guy has to fill a role. So you love the camaraderie of the brotherhood. It's the brotherhood of football is something that unless you play it, you don't understand it. Um, because it's, you know, it doesn't really matter what color you are, anything. It's just about a team trying to win. A Can you do your job and help Can us you, win? That's it. Boxing, I'm imagining, gives you something different. What do you, what's, why is ba- boxing such a passion so point for you? The first thing I tell people is when you those three steps that you first walk uh, first walk up those three steps before you get into that ring. If you walk up those three steps and you get in that ring, I have gained a lot of respect for you because there's nothing more frightening than going into a fight. You know you either walk those three steps or you don't. 
Because once you walk those three steps up into the ring, you, you're going to go in the ring. What do you think of McGregor Mayweather? Um, so, two great businessmen. Um, we knew exactly what they were doing. Uh, and made a whole lot of money. You know, for doing what they what they did. But they, they did something very ingenious. They made a business out of it. And they cashed in on it. Now, with that being said, Mayweather was getting older. Mayweather was one of the greatest fighters, but I always think to myself that he did not fight anyone in their prime. Okay. McGregor now, for someone who just picked up boxing, you know, I, I said to myself, I said to everyone, I'm like, you know what? He's a 25-minute fighter. He's not a 30-minute fighter. So obviously Mayweather knew when to jump on him, allowing to, you know, empty out his tank and then jump on him when he had to. And that's exactly what happened. But I really wish I would have seen McGregor fight some C minus, C plus, B minus fighters, maybe for a year or two, and then see what would have happened. No, because I mean, I was really impressed with him. I was very, very impressed with him. And I don't care what anybody says. Oh, he got knocked out. And you know what? Yeah, you know what? He got knocked out by the so called greatest fighter. But he did pretty darn well. The reason I asked about it is I was refusing to watch it because I'm like, this is a publicity stunt. I don't want to watch it. I did. And the night came and my buddy's like, look, we're having the fight. Uh, my brother happened to be in town and so they were watching it at his house. I'm like, all right, another chance for me to hang out with my brother and watch it. So I went. I was blown away. Yeah. Um, and I went into it completely thinking this is going to be a joke. And to your point, he not only got in the ring, he then fearlessly gave everything Every, he, had. he had. Absolutely. And so I had immense respect for him. Of course. And for Mayweather, because Mayweather, to your point, he always sticks to his process. Yes. He doesn't buy into what he... The audience thinks he has to do. He doesn't care about no, that. He's got he just plan. cares that there's a zero next to his yep. name and that there's no losses. That's it. And I came out of it, like like you said, going into it, I was like, these guys are just businessmen and they're just taking taking people's money. I left it being like that was entertaining. And these guys both did what was best for them mm-hmm. to win. Yeah. And. I walked out of it being like, man, I'm, I have a lot of respect for it. Anyway, we could go into a rabbit hole oh, with yeah. that. But I want to go back. So so you're excelling at, at football. You've got the confidence, the swagger that you developed from a young age in boxing. Um, and I would imagine you also learned that, like, you have to be somewhat of a savage on the field, right? Like, it's, it's you and yeah. that guy. And in boxing, there is no running away. There no. isn't passing the ball to a teammate. It's a spotlight on you, and you're either going to get embarrassed or you're going to try to embarrass the guy. And there's something ruthless about it, but sports can be ruthless sometimes. Yes. What was your mindset like in high school for, for football? And then also I'd love to hear about it. You, you play Division One football. You go off to Towson. I want to hear about that. Um, so walk me through those, those So times in high in school, um, I, it's funny. So in high school, I was a wide receiver. I was a free safety. Uh, you know. I was definitely one of our top athletes in, in on, on our team and in our high school. Um, and my senior year, uh, we didn't have a quarterback. Our quarterback left to go to Florida, who was a really good friend of mine. Um, so we needed a quarterback. And, uh, you know, I was like, why not? You know, like, why not? I, I, you know, I believed in myself that I can I, that I actually play quarterback and pick it up in one summer and become our, our starting quarterback. And so I did. I picked up that summer. I became my starting quarterback. Um, I led us to a 6-3 record. Uh, you know, it, I wish that I would have another year to prepare. I think we would have done a lot better. But um, it, I didn't have the confidence that I had 
when I was in college or after. What at that point were you already being recruited to play college football? Yes. Yeah, I already had. Yeah, I already had my. I already had my scholarship there. So you already knew where you were going. Yeah, and I, all that. Go, yeah I, already, I had a few schools, but I already knew where I was going. Okay. I, I had it in my heart. So you could take that risk to go do something and just give it a try because it's not like they're recruiting you. Correct. To yeah, and and they also knew that I had to change positions. And going to college is that like? So that was never something that I would ever ever thought of. My my father. I don't even know if I went to graduate high school. My mom, I have, don't even recall. So neither one do I remember even going to college, or definitely not going to even high, finishing high school. God knows. But um, I would be the first, um, and I went, got my degree. Were you excited to do that? Like that means something to you, or is it just an opportunity? It was a very to play proud. Football? It was a very proud moment for me um, because I remember sitting down and at the time talking to my girlfriend in high school and. She knew a little bit about my life, and she was like, you know, you, you should be proud of this. And my high school coach, uh, my freshman coach, who I loved dearly, uh, God rest his soul, you know, he told me, he goes, I knew you were something special, and I knew that you would be one of one that I would see go off to play Division One football. So second person in your life that we really are hearing that they believe in you and they think yeah. you can do something special. Yeah, yeah. So, my again, my mom and my freshman football coach, you know, those are two people that... I always think revert back to and uh, I just when there are times when you know you have a low in life and uh, you're thinking about things they just pop into my head and I would just think about it somebody just popping them into my head to just pick me up so I, uh, college was amazing loved it I was a little undersized so I got a little beat up but greatest experience I got my degree out of it in business um, and after that it was kind of like okay what do I do now so I went and got a job I was working at Pfizer as a quality insurance manager for one, a year and a half, then I went on the other side, I went to an aseptic manager, um, and then I went to the sales side of it, and once I was in the sales side of it, I started. I felt like I needed something again in my life, some kind of sport, so why not start boxing again at the age of 26, you know, 25, 26, and that's what happened. I started, I went back to the amateurs, um, I started boxing in White Plains, and I went, I came across a, uh, a coach, a Jewish coach, who was an English teacher, Mr. Peter Wood, um, who's amazing. He uh, he definitely pushed me to the brink, um, and we started training. He and I, and it's funny because when I started training with him, he was actually writing a book, um, and I'm actually in his book on the cover and everything. So it was a pretty amazing experience. But uh, we started training, and uh, there were some highs and some lows. He was someone again who uh, who really pushed me, not just mentally. Uh, emotionally and physically in boxing, but he really sat me down. We would have talks. You know, he's one of those uh, coaches who uh, he was a Jewish coach who uh, grew up in an era where you know Jews were not supposed to be boxing in the ring with everybody else. And we just said we would have long talks, and our, our, our boxing relationship and our partnership when I was uh, training for the gloves was pretty dynamic. Um, I had the Puerto Rican flag trunks with the Italian flag on them and the Jewish star on them. Very not normal in you know New York City to see uh, a Puerto Rican Italian guy with a uh, Italian flag, Puerto Rican flag, and a Jewish star on his trunks. So we were uh, we were a team of two that we felt like we were army of a thousand. Was he a father figure for you? Um, I wouldn't say he was a father figure, but he was definitely a role model. Um, he definitely he definitely helped shape me into a better human when at a time when I felt a little lost. Because, you know, people ask me, like, why would you go back to boxing? 
And I was, you know, I used the, I used the bucket list excuse, but I think I just needed to find myself again after college because I felt kind of lost just working and not having something. So mm-hmm. going back to the amateurs really helped out. And he, you know, he took me a long way. I mean, we won the gloves, we won the empires, won the metros. Walk, to, walk people through what that means because I think a lot of people. So I went to New York Golden Gloves. I won the New York Golden Gloves. Uh, and what I, was your weight? One sixty-five. Uh, I went to the. Uh, Empire State Games, New York Empire State Games, which is like the Olympics for like the New York State area. I, I won that. And then I came back around that fall and I won the uh, Metros. Uh, that following year, I went to the Eastern Olympic Trials. Won there and I got the chance to go to Colorado Springs to fight, you know, to train in the uh, Olympic Center for boxing. Uh, I lost in trials in the quarterfinals. Um, you know, a little guy from, you know, Rockland County in the quarterfinals. That was pretty amazing for me. Uh, came back home, went again to the gloves, won the gloves, following year won the Empires again, following year won the Why Metros. not go pro? Why why stay amateur? Well, this is I never had a desire to go. I, mean, I felt I was older. Um, so after the last trials, I was like, okay, like I'm older now. I started dating, started dating a girl who, uh, who's, her, her husband's, her best friend's husband's uncle was a boxing manager. Had heard all about me looked me up and uh, wanted to meet with me. So we met. He was a doctor in uh, Star New York. We met and he asked me if he wanted to turn pro and I was like, no way, like I'm older now. I have a, I have a job, I have responsibilities. Um, just something that, you know, it's not on my list. And I thought about it one day and I'm like, why not? Like, why not do this? You know, I'm, I'm good enough. I can definitely do this. A um, couple of things though. You don't, you don't box for fun, A, as a professional. This isn't golf. Exactly. And B, um, you don't fight at the weight that you walk around at. And I knew that. But I was not going to lose weight. So I fought at light heavyweight, 175. I walked around about 182. Um, and I trained. I, I would say I won out of my 10 professional fights that I've won. I'd say about. Seven of them, I won on just pure talent. You know, the uh, the other two, I I won on just grit because they were fights where I was like, "Whoa, this is this Touch is this is real. This yeah. is real." You know, um, but I also knew that I was getting older, and it wasn't something I wanted to do and, and devote my life to. And walk me through because we went into the cancer earlier. When did the testicular cancer? So that's when. So the testicular cancer once it hit me. Uh, it, what happened was I was playing flag football. Here to tell you, I was playing flag football while I was boxing, something you don't do. Um, and I had pulled an adductor. Really, it's the inner part of your leg. So I pulled the adductor, and uh, I was like, whoa. Like, you went from there to my groin. I just pulled it, and I possibly, I think I tore it at the time. So I went to the doctor, and I did tear it. I did take an MRI of it. So I got therapy on it. Um, we had a good six months. I did rehab on it, therapy, everything. And I went back to playing in the spring and I went to go cut and I just felt a pull, like a really high pull. Uh, I was like, well, we're back to my doctor. I'm like, hey, we take an MRI. This is thing's still bothering me. So we took the MRI and uh, I said, you you may want to reach up really high up in my groin region because that's where I feel it. It's just not really in the adductor. It's really like high up in the groin. So they got the MRI and the x-ray and uh, he's like, we got to talk. And I'm like, what do you mean we got to talk? He's like, you see this? They show me the uh, the MRI, X-ray, the MRI. He's like, see all that black shading? I'm like, yeah. He's like, 
we got to discuss that because that's not, that's not supposed to be there. Mm. I'm like, well, what do you mean? He's like, I, he goes, it's not my, not my area, but I know that that's not supposed to be there. So called the doctor. Um, I went over to the doctor the same day, checked it out. And he's like, you have stage one. I'm like, stage one what? He's like, and how old are you? I'm just turning 31. Yeah, she's turning 31. Yeah. That's something a 31-year-old who's in amazing shape, I would imagine. Yeah, I, mean, I was like, whoa, okay. Um, so, you know, we got, went got radiation, took care of it. I did all my treatment. I was good. Um, and I was like, fine, like, okay. You know, like, I battled it. Nobody needs to know about it. It's no one's business. It's mine. Um, and then I, uh, I went a whole year doing everything I had to do, my checkups, everything. It was fine. I started dating someone and I started playing flag. And then I remember waking up one day and she's like, you have a ball spot inside of your head. Like, what are you talking about? So I started, I got a ball spot inside of my head. I'm like, well, maybe alopecia, or go to the doctor. Um, and because of radiation, people sometimes get that. Um, but I also started feeling a lot more, not normal, you know, it, um, my, my body just didn't feel right um, and you're supposed to do a checkup all the time and when I started doing my checkups I'm like I don't know how it's supposed to feel but I know this is not the way it's supposed to feel this is an entire 16 to 18 months later uh, I go back to the doctor and I'm like I don't know but I just don't feel right like my body doesn't feel right I don't know what's going on you know like I'm losing hair like down there this doesn't feel right like I do my, my own checkup like you told me to do and it's not feeling that I'm supposed to feel. He's like, you know, maybe just let's just calm down. Let's let's just get a checkup. Let's check you out. You know, um, I get checked out, and he tells me that this the lump has come back. I'm like, you gotta be joking me. He's like, no, and this time it's pretty big. I'm like, so what do you mean it's pretty big? He's like, this time you gotta get. We have to do chemo. Radiation is not gonna knock this out. It's your past stage one. Like radiation, that means like lose my hair. So it's like, yeah, I'm like, okay. So I talked to my girl, my ex girlfriend about it. It's my girlfriend at the time. Um, and you know, I'll let her know what's gonna happen. And I remember like her going through it with me. I remember waking up on Sundays, like, you know, well, like I had the hair's worst hangover in the world, you know, and I don't even know what the, it just wasn't pleasant. I remember going through all this, and I was like, you know, it's time for me to just work. Boxing is. I'm not worried about boxing now. I'm just worried about life. Um, and I'm worried about us, her and I at the time. And I'm worried about my own life, you know. And I think that was the first time that I really thought about the, the, the present and my future. I never really thought about my future until that time when it hit me the second time. Like kids, wife, you know, uh, you know, what's my future going to look like? And I remember that just really just hitting me at that moment. And that's why I just started to, I need to start taking care of myself. And uh, got married, got my chemo, did what I had to do. I lost my weight, lost my hair. Um, I had patches everywhere. I remember shaving it. Um, I had lost Were you able to weight. work out? Like what, what was So physically? I physically, I was drained. I was really drained. And I tried to continue to work out. It was not the smartest thing. I've never said I was the smartest. Um, and the doctor would be really upset when I'd go home and, I'd recover for two days. I'd be fine. 
for three or four, and I would try to get a workout in. And I was going to say, were you training at this point? Like, No, I wasn't training. You're working. I, had, I was stopped. I stopped training. Um, I had stopped working. Okay. Um, and that's when I also did a career change. Once the uh, once I was done with the chemo, I realized that I didn't want to work nine to five. It wasn't for me. I also realized that boxing is something that I love, but you just you can't pick boxing up at a later stage in your life and want to turn pro and do boxing for fun. You don't do boxing for fun. Boxing is it's not a hobby. It's not a hobby. It's also not a sport. It's you know it's something that you have to have a different mindset. And my mindset was a lot different then. Um, so. Everyone said to me, you should really, you know, be a personal trainer. And, and I told my friends, that's what I'm going to do. You know, like, I love fitness. Boxing is, is my passion. Football is my love. I know the workouts. I know everything about it. So why not just turn it into something? Went in, told my boss. My boss is like, whoa, you know, okay. Are you sure about this? I'm like, yeah. My friend's like, you sure? I'm like, yeah, I'm sure about this. And I remember healing up, getting better, and going into a New York sports club. And, uh... Getting a job in New York Post, I was a personal trainer, and I remember working the floor for seven dollars and twenty-five cents. And I think why I, were you so sure? Because this has been the first time that we've been talking. You kind of lit up when you when you told that story yeah. and said, "You know, I, I, def- I, there's such clarity that you have." Um, it's you know, it's funny. Um, people ask me, "Was I like you know?" I always tell people when what I do now becomes a job, it's time for me to go. When me doing fitness becomes a job, it's time for me to go. Like, I need to stop and do something else. Um, and I knew that training people and sharing my passion with others to help them, you know, get to a, a point in their life that they possibly had never thought they could be at and surpass it, um, that's when I knew that, uh, you know, this is what I had to be doing. Like, this was my place. This was what I was put on this earth for, and that was fitness. And helping others achieve goals, crush goals, set new ones, you know, um, do things that they possibly thought that they can never do, live a healthy lifestyle, live a, a, a lifestyle, you know, injury free or working around their injuries to still work out and doing it with their spouses, with their kids. So, yeah, that's what I knew, you know, but I'm not going to lie to you. It was, <laughs> let me tell you something. I read my first check. I looked at my paycheck and I was like, well, it was like four hundred dollars like every two weeks, and I was like, "How am I going to pay my rent doing this?" Um, and I questioned my I questioned my decision. I'm not going to lie to you. I tell everyone still this day, the first fourteen months of my my fitness career, I questioned myself every day. I was living like I was back in college, uh, ramen noodles, like you know spaghetti. Like it was it was not the best. You know, people are like oh, I want to become a trainer, become a celebrity. I, no, the grind that I had to do. I was working eight hour shifts making $7 an hour, then working an extra four or five on the floor to pick up clients. You know, doing things that you don't want to be doing, but things that you have to do in order to succeed. And that's when you know you you, you know you want it. And I think there was a change for me when my first fitness manager, who's a female, who's a strength conditioning coach, took me under her wing. She said to me, she goes, what do you want to do? I was like, well, what do you mean? She's like, do you want to be a personal trainer or do you want to be a fitness professional? She's like, I'm going to leave you with that question until tomorrow when we speak. And I want you to think about that. And I'm like, what is this crazy lady talking about? A personal trainer, a fitness professional. Like, it's the same thing. I'm on the train going home back to back to uh, Westchester. And it just hit me. I'm like, okay. I know what she's talking about. 
Personal trainers do this just to do it. A fitness professional, this is your career. This is your passion. This is something you, you, you chose this profession for a reason. And this is who you are. This is what you're supposed to be doing. I came back the next day. I'm like, I want to be a fitness professional. She's like, let's do it. And she took me under her wing and I learned uh, from her so much. And since then, we're still friends, her and I, you know, we, uh, we communicate over Instagram and Facebook. Um, and I remember, uh, she told me that she's like, I'm proud of you. She's, and I said to her, you know, I wouldn't be here to this day if it weren't for you. Like you t- taught me so much. And I still remember our first conversation and she's like, what was that? I was like, that the personal trainer or the fitness professional. She's like, are you kidding? I'm like, no, I still remember that. And I, I go and I use it. I use it now when I talk to young instructors, young trainers who come to the industry, um, who ask me, you know, just to sit with me and talk about fitness and New York City fitness. And I let them know, you know, what is that you're looking to do? If you're looking to become a celebrity in this industry, it's not for you. If you're looking to help people become better humans, become people who, you know, who look to you to put them in a path for their fitness goals, their career, and, you know, that's what you want to be doing, then you do that. That's what you should do. But this is something that you want to do because of fame, this isn't for you. Yeah, the why matters, right? Yes. Like, why are you doing this? And I just go back to that conversation you had with your mom and how she helped you believe in yourself and how that resonated with you. And that impacted you on the Monday where you were in the, in the boxing ring. And what you're doing now is trying to help people feel that way that you felt mm-hmm. in that Monday that I can do things if I set my mind uh, to do those things. And I want to inspire others to be the best that they can be from a fitness standpoint. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, uh, so one thing I, like I said, for me, it's all about motivating, inspiring, and having you believe in yourself. You know, um, I think the one thing that a lot of us humans lack is self-belief, self, you know, self-love, self-belief. And I, I know where it comes from, you know, um, I know what it's like. And a lot of people, when they see instructors, fitness instructors, they believe that we're so confident and that, you know, things come so easy to us. And it doesn't. It really doesn't. We all have a story, you know, and fortunately for me, my story helps me to help others. Well, I think what's cool about you is from the outside looking in, I'm sure people look at you and they see success in some way, shape or form, especially in your industry. But your story and your journey is is very relevant. and. It's a reminder that there's more than meets the eye. Yeah. You've battled cancer multiple times. You've lost your parents. Uh, your parents have had an impact on you. You've quit jobs. Uh, you've lost boxing matches. Yeah. Uh, so there's there's plenty of failure to go around or plenty of lack of success to go around. But there's always more than meets the eye with all of us. Uh, I would love to end by just finding out. Tell us a little more about the fitting room. Sure. Uh, Tell us where we can find you on social media. I know you guys at Fitting Room are active on Instagram. I know you personally are active on Instagram. For me, I'm just learning Instagram (laughs) because I don't have some of the qualities, I'll just say qualities, that the people at the Fitting Room have. I'm I'm here at at their gym right now and I'm looking around. I'm like, okay, Brian, you're supposed to be a podcaster, right? There's a reason. It's like when people say they go into radio, right? uh, right? It's because they have a face for radio. Mm -hmm. Uh, these people in the fitting room, they have the body for Instagram, I would say. <laughs> um, but 
but I'm going to let you t- sort of promote what you want to promote, whether okay. it's the fitting room or Instagram, uh, whatever you want to do. All. It's your world, and I'm just I'm Okay, just well, no, I, I really want to thank you for today. Um, this was an amazing experience. Um, I can't thank you enough. So you can find me at on Instagram at FFTStrong. Um, I've been very lucky this past year. I've become a Nike trainer, which is something that, uh, you know, I've always wanted since I came to this industry. And um, I think uh, I'm hoping that, I don't know, it's something that really hit me hard this this year. When it hit me, I was just like wowed by it because it shows, I guess, it let me know that my work in this industry is, is, is appreciated and that they believe in me. Um, and it was a really big thing for us here at the fitting room. Um, it's, I'm hoping that maybe next year I can get one more instructor from our team into Nike Trainer. Um, but you can find a fitting room. We have three locations. We have one location on East 67th Street and 3rd Avenue. We have another location on West 19th between 5th and 6th. And we have our newest location on the Upper West Side on 88th Street and Columbus. Um, the fitting room, we are high intensity interval training studio um, we have two instructors 24 people per class um, the program changes every day we'll do some strength we'll do some kettlebell work we'll do dumbbell work we have skiers we have rowers we have assault bikes we have battle ropes we do a lot of suspension trainer um, so um, not every day all the class be the same but we will challenge you physically challenge you emotionally challenge you mentally um, but more importantly, you will love the community when you come here. You will love the instructors. Um, my boss is very active in taking classes with, with people. You know, there you could have someone be like, oh, who's your boss? I'm like, oh, the lady we just did in class next to you. That's my boss. Um, so, yeah, our head instructor is amazing. He, uh, Eric Salvador, he's one person who honestly uh, has helped me in my career. Um, learning from him has been uh, something that I owe him a lot in the last three years. Um, he's possibly the founder of all our trainers we all follow his mantra and uh, he leads by example so uh, what is that mantra it's you know he, he's uh, someone who uh, is very well-rounded in fitness and uh, I took a big um, I know he showed me a lot really um, teaching with him over the past few years and I felt that I just took everything I learned from him and used it in my own version and uh, it's really help me to be the instructor I am today. I think I've taken a lot from different instructors and that's the beauty of our instructors is that each one of us has our own little dynamic style um, and we, you know, we we, uh, we learn from each other but he's our head instructor and uh, he's, pretty, he's pretty awesome and uh, I'm definitely uh, thankful that well, he's our instructor. I think one of the cool things we were talking about before we turned on the mics was how intentional you guys are with the workouts and yes. how they're constantly evolving changing you know it's it's daily it's weekly it's yeah making them better reflecting mm-hmm. how do we improve in, in in that way it's not static yeah no so our workouts um they change they change daily our program changes daily we'll have some days where it's a very conditioning heavy day we'll have some days where it's very uh strength heavy we'll have other days where it's a team circuit which is awesome when you have a team circuit because you're working with three different other people together for 16, 20 minutes, you know, and you're a little team together and you're really competing against yourselves. Um, we also are, you know, sometimes we use all kettlebell work. We'll do all dumbbell work. We'll use body weight movements. The beauty of it also is that at the fitting room, we will modify any movement for any injury. Um, I'm pre and post certified. We also have a few other instructors that are pre and post certified. 
and we have a lot of moms, you know, who are in the first trimester, second trimester, third trimester. We have post who they come back and, you know, they're kind of like, I need to get back in shape, but I can't do this or that. And when I know that a lot of instructors are pre and post, you know, certified, they feel so comfortable being here and their husbands feel comfortable with them being here. So um, that's another thing that we have going for us is that we have a very well-educated team um, in this industry. And that's the one thing that uh, I'm very proud of is that our team here, it's just not about our certifications, but our experience and our knowledge in the, in the industry is bar none, you know. Well, Dennis, I just want to thank you for the time. I want to thank you for the time. This uh, is amazing. This is awesome. You're a stranger, so for you to open <laughs> up to me is, uh, is really helpful. And I know you talked about it's hard for you to go from acquaintances to friends, but uh, hopefully we can continue I, I the dialogue. I think we just became friends. Yeah. I think you just, you just got my whole life story. So, no, this We're is really buddies. awesome. Yes, we are. I hope to see you again. And thank you so much for coming to uh, Fin Room on the Upper East Side. And thank you for having me and, you know, opening up the fitting room to your world and uh, hopefully we'll get you in here once you uh, once you get better yeah I, we were talking about my knees and how I, I need help so i'm still working on myself we will get you like back we in all here. are we'll get you um, in here just a reminder for everyone you can follow me on twitter at brian levinson and then the instagram uh handle is intentional underscore performers and then also our website intentionalperformers.com. thanks to dennis for hosting and uh for for allowing us to learn a little more about you in the fitting thank room. you so much for having me today Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode jam. Hey, I remember, I remember after our conversation, I just remember that Monday going to the gym. This was on a Sunday. Her and I took a walk, and we had a conversation after church. And uh, I cried to her, and she just sat me down and just spoke to me, told me how great she thought I was and how you don't have to be a tough guy to be a fighter. You don't have to be this. You just have to believe in you, believe in yourself. And believe when you're in that ring that you are the best. She's like, I believe in you. I wouldn't allow you to do this if I didn't believe in you. She's like, I want you to be the best. And I tell you that Monday, that Monday on, I went to the gym and nobody that was my age or a couple years older than me wanted to spar with me after that. I would have to spar with the older, older kids because I was whooping some tail. <laughs>